text comes from Ezekiel chapter 10. attention to the word of God. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there stood above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man, in, man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels and from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim and to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels besides the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling burl. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel within a wheel. And when they went, they went in any of the four, their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims, their spokes, their wings, and their wheels were full of eyes all around the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they, had, they were called in my hearing the whir whirling wheels. And one hand had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kebar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. And when they stood still, they, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the, from the earth before my eyes as they went out and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kebar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. 
Each had four faces and each had four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces who appearance I had seen by the Kebar Canal. Each of them went straight forward. And may God bless to understanding the reading of his infallible inerrant word. Amen. The, probably the biggest single distraction in my life is like your life is social media. You know, we get glued to the, uh, the reports. And if you don't have that addiction, stay away from it. Uh, but I do keep tabs on people through it. And I do post things that are hopefully uh, helpful and encouraging. But among, among the, I see things from our missionaries often on uh, social media that otherwise I wouldn't be uh, uh, informed about. And one of the things that I notice is our own Jacob personally, who was with us last Sunday on home assignment as well, uh, was visiting a, a bookstore in some place, and he was absolutely shocked to see a massive display on the table as he entered the bookstore of books about witchcraft and sorcery. And I am uh, surprised, at having been away and now prominently displayed in a public place, um, uh, such uh, a display. Well, I did a minimal amount of research, and so I, I decided just to see, just Google witchcraft in, in the United States. And I came across an article in a in, in 2018 uh, article in Newsweek magazine that said in 2018 there were 1.5 million practicing witches in the United States of America. In a way of contrast, in 2018, the mainline Presbyterian Church in the United States of America listed 1.4 million members. Now, that sunk into, that was four years ago. Those numbers have no doubt increased. I also noticed on my news feed um, from one of the uh, popular sources, that touring, currently touring the United Kingdom churches and prominently displaying uh, displays dedicated to the goddess Gaia. Gaia is uh, Mother Earth. And encouraging those churches, if they could be called such, to worship the the goddess Gaia. My mind could, could not help but come back to Ezekiel and the presenting problem in Ezekiel of God's presence leaving the temple because of idolatry. We have in our text a picture of that painted by the words of Ezekiel 
the picture of the spiritual reality that he witnessed as the glory of God departs. And just as surely as the glory of God has departed, the main, many of the mainline churches here in, in Europe, and those houses, those houses, those wonderful houses of worship dedicated to the glory of God have turned themselves over to the overt worship of idols and other gods. And we see, this is why we're seeing the effects that we see in our present culture. So do not think that studying the book of Ezekiel or going through it is simply a, a practice of, that, of, um, uh, of uh, trying to figure out a word puzzle. No, this is the word of God. Its application is for us today. Think of the, the state of the temple after this. Uh, you remember your, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are uh, de uh, devoted to the return of Israel after 40 years of exile. And they rebuild the temple and the people of God weep because its glory is not as the former glory of Solomon's temple. It's not as good. And then the subsequent history of the temple and the people of Israel as, as uh, they are returned to the land by uh, the Persians and yet uh, right behind them another nation, the, the, the Greeks, uh, rise up and they, they invade Israel and they invade the, the uh, temple and the leader of that nation at the time, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, slaughters pigs on the altar of the temple. They're fortunately able to cleanse it and resume worship until the time of Christ. Uh, but, but nonetheless, even at the time of Christ, the worship of God was not central to the temple. Not even when God himself in the person of Jesus appeared in it to teach. For you see, the temple was supposed to be the residence of God's glory. It was the place that God took up residence with his people Israel. It was the place in its beauty and its design and its artistic work that was to represent who God was and what heaven was like. If you turn over to the dedication of, of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 7 and you read the descriptions of the artistic work that was done, you will see that it is, it is strikingly similar to this spiritual reality that Ezekiel describes. These creatures, these chariots, this throne, these, these animals, and, and the various things they represent, they represent most and foremost the glory of God and the angelic beings that lead that worship in heaven. When, I, when we hear the word cherub, uh, I, I, uh, 
I can't help but think of the little Christmas cards with the little chubby angels <laughs> on them. And, and, if, and if you're not familiar with the, the language here, the Hebrew language here, cherubim is simply the plural of cherub. It's, it's, it's just the Hebrew plural. There are more than one. These incredible creatures exist for one purpose, and that is to declare and show God's glory in heaven. And it is beyond our comprehension how great and majestic and how powerful they are. But note again, they all sit beneath the throne of God in which he reigns over them. The temple was a stylized representation of the throne of God in heaven. Here, that curtain is pulled back. Those layers are pulled back and Ezekiel is transported into the very presence of God in the angels. And he sees it. And in this place that was to represent that place beyond this world where God sits on the throne and rules over all, in that place was God to be worshipped according to his word. This passage is about God's glory departing the temple. Something that would finally take place when our Lord Jesus would walk out of it after cleansing the temple for the final time before his death on the cross. If you will take the grid of Ezekiel and you lay it over the events of Christ's last week of earthly ministry, you will see depicted in his movements the departure of the glory of God here. This is a precursor of what Christ did. Even to the directions that he goes. He crosses the, the uh, he crosses he goes to, to he withdraws with the disciples for a while to the south gate and then he comes uh, back to the temple and then he departs to the east just as this glory cloud departs. It is a picture of what is to come. And we know that just as surely as God's glory departs the temple here, when Jesus departs, he prophesies that within this generation, this temple and all its glory will be removed, not one sta stone standing upon another. cloud again represents God's presence we, when we first meet the cloud it's with the children of Israel and in the, in, in, their wanderings it symbolized as it followed them God's presence within the brightness of light symbolizes the light that followed them at night and that kept them by night the sound and the, the majesty of the, the wings of the cherubim 
flying, imminent, all indicating the glorious worship of God. And you also look over into John's account of being taken up into heaven in Revelation chapter 4, you see the very strikingly similar picture. That incredible place of the residence of God's glory on earth is being vacated. Second, we see the reason for the departure. The reason is God is finished in his patience with his people. In, in verse 3, um, or verse 2 rather, I have verse 3 up there, but it should be verse 2. And I, I'll, I'll be, if you're trying to follow my, the verses, you're going to be in trouble. This is more, this is more of a topical um, uh, exposition, hopefully true to the text. Fill your hands to the man clothed in linen. He says, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Pour out hot coals on the city and burn it. Judgment is coming. And it's coming from the same man who was clothed in linen we met last Sunday night, and those who were here Sunday night in chapter 9, who was clothed in linen, who marked those who were faithful with the, uh, with the uh, Hebrew letter Tav, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which in ancient Hebrew is a cross. So there's a glorious picture of the gospel in, in that chapter. The cross is what saves God's people from the destruction they deserve. But what we have here is a picture, a representative picture of the wrath of God that will be poured out. And again, a picture of what happens when Jesus in his person leaves. And there is no doubt in my mind, having studied this and compared it with with uh, scripture and revelation and compared it with what virtually every single godly commentator says about it, that this is a representation of the second person of the triune Godhead. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. And this is the one who pours out his wrath. Now that, how does that comport with our picture that we have in our mind of sweet Jesus meek and mild which is a, a, a good picture Jesus is meek and mild he, he is gracious and kind he is uh, an infant who is incarnate in the world in a real infant's body and he grows to manhood and all of those things that we love so much but note here how he's clothed. He's clothed in linen. And linen is the 
suit, you know, in, in the South where I grew up, this is the suit, the preaching suit, you know. I, I don't wear a robe. Some, some confessions wear robes, and that's the suit. And uh, some, some traditions even wear linen, uh, and, and they call themselves priests. Um, we Presbyterians don't do that. We are either we either low church or we wear the Geneva gown, the black robe, and that that uh, represents the color of our heart. That's why we wear it. Um, that's, that's a little bit of a joke. Not really. But it's a priestly. The white linen robe is a priestly garment. And, and it's, a, it's a picture of Jesus, our great high priest. And he's not merely a priest who, who makes sacrifice for sins. He is a priest that executes judgment because that's what sacrifices represent. They represent the righteous judgment that follows rebellion. Um, I'm excited, to, as Jay is, to hear David Zadok, um, among other things, to ask him if he's related to Ezekiel, because uh, Ezekiel was uh, the priestly line of Zadok, who, who you recall was the pre David's priest in uh, his life in the temple when he served the temple. So what a, what a great name to start with. He makes the all-name team for me immediately. <laughs> This is a picture of the movement of God who moved Solomon because his father David couldn't build the temple. Solomon was given the commission to build the temple, who started so ably and well, who, who gathered all the supplies, who did the fantastic craftsmanship and built this, uh, this resident place according to the instructions of God. And then immediately at the end of his life, he, as he grew prosperous because of his, of his faithfulness, he began to worship false gods. And it says very plainly and very clearly in Scripture that the heart, his heart was turned away because of all the marriage alliances that he made and, and all of the uh, idolatry that came into Jerusalem and the temple as a result of those. And the history of Israel ever since was one of civil war and disobedience and judgment, including up to this time. If you study history, and you should study histories, the great lack in our current education system, and I'm so glad to see a movement in homeschooling and, and, uh, and uh, Christian schooling to teach history faithfully. You should study, and one of the requirements in recent years, it wasn't a requirement when I when I um, uh, was ordained in the ministry. We, we, we have to be examined in the area of church history, which is a wonderful uh, step in the right direction. So, because how can you understand where we are now if you don't understand where the church has been? from its inception. If you study the history of the church in Europe and the church in the United States, of which we are the direct um, descendants of in the life of the church, you, you'll see it 
throughout the landscape, how churches that began as movements of the Holy Spirit, how churches that began as uh, dynamic, with a dynamic desire to reach lost people for Christ, uh, gradually drifted away, either gradually drifted away or suddenly were swept away because of turning away from the worship of the one true God. We are in a family of churches that is famous for its orthodoxy. We're famous for our, our, our fidelity, or we once were, our fidelity to um, iner the inerrancy of Scripture and our adherence to our, our confessional documents, were, which were formed in the 17th century in the heart of one of the most fierce times of contention uh, for the truth of the Bible. And yet, even our conservative family of churches is in danger, in great danger, of, of watching and seeing the glory of God. Note, note the deliberation. It, the, the glory of God comes out of the temple. It comes in this glorious vision of a cloud and this bright and shining light and this whirring sound of the, of the wings of the angels. And it hovers over the entrance before it leaves. And I wonder if that's where we are or whether it's already moving away. good news is whatever the situation whatever the 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 uh, whatever is occurring God is providentially overruling for his purposes we know what causes it it's when we turn our backs on what God has commanded but note the exact same vision of the glory of God that was in chapter 1. If you remember chapter 1 of Ezekiel, if you weren't here for chapter 1, go back and look at chapter 1. You'll see the same exact vision of the glory of God. And you'll see where uh, the man in linen takes the coals from. It comes from his providential dealings with humanity. God will use providence to bring about the advancement of his kingdom and his glory. And the truth is, God is patient. He hovers. He waits. He, he instructs with his word. Even in the days of Noah, when, when humanity reached the fever pitch of rebellion against God that resulted in the destruction of the whole world. Before that happened, we're told it was the kindness of God that was patient with the people. He gave them time to repent. And so it is for every individual believer. It, so it is for every body of believers individually and in collectively as the people of God he gives us time. 
to repent and to, to turn back to him and to worship him as he has instructed us to do so. But yet we see the ominous result of the departure is the outpouring of that wrath. The same man who gathered, gathered those coals, pours them out. The same man who uh, marks with the cross in chapter 9, the people of God to be saved from the wrath to come, pours out that wrath. is such a parallel to Ezekiel. You should be reading through the book of Revelation while you're reading through Ezekiel, hopefully following this. But in chapter 19, you read this in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, just like Ezekiel did. And behold, a white horse, the one who's sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire in his head. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name in which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the picture... And Ezekiel is the same as the picture in Revelation 19. He is the same one in the same exalted place, in the same exalted office. The same one who would leave his throne to come into this world to be sweet Jesus, meek and mild the spotless Lamb of God. He has come. But the picture here, the picture of Him after His ascension in Revelation is a picture of His majesty. And again, it is in the providential dealing with the nations that His wrath is shown through the course of history. And as we go further in the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see it's not merely Israel who's being judged. It's every nation that is being judged that surrounds them. It's the Persians. It's the Greeks. It's the Romans. It's the Holy Roman Empire. And all who follow. In, in, in Ezekiel, it's, it's Edom. It's Ammon, it's Moab, it's Philistia, it's Tyre, it's Egypt, and Sodom. It's all of these nations. 
that surround that nation. But here and throughout history, it's one empire after another, whether it's the Dutch Empire, or the Spanish Empire, or the British Empire, or the American Empire, if you could call it that. They will all be brought to nothing. If you're a student of history, you know this. If you go on a tour of the ancient ruins, what do they show you of the mighty Roman Empire? There's a bunch of rocks and things scattered all over, and you use your imagination to think about what it was like. If you go to a thriving church in, in, uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey, you, if you, if you, I've never taken this tour, but I'd love to take it, but, but I understand there's not much to look at. You go on the tour of the seven uh, churches of Asia Minor, and you see a bunch of rocks strewn everywhere. And you might go up and see, as I have seen, some of these most beautiful mosaic floors where once uh, a dedicated community of the people of God met, and now they walk out on these little uh, mosaic floors and they go, oh, that's pretty. There's nothing there. There's no people there. There's rocks. God's temple in the New Testament is not built with marvelous stones. It's built in the individual life of the believer. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. It says you individually are the temple of God. Your body is a temple of God. You are made to serve the living God. He resides in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. And then it, then it says you as a body of believers gathered together. You are the temple of God. And God dwells in your midst. It's all we have. It's all we need. And this is the principle of the gospel. It's in, it's summarized so beautifully. And, and, and the application, I believe, of this whole passage for me is summarized by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 2. You can summarize it like this. Verse 9 of chapter 2 of Romans. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But, this is wonderful, I love these buts like this, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And again, this is the rest of the book of Ezekiel in summary. God will cleanse his people. God will, will forgive his people who turn to him in faith. God will cleanse you today if you turn to him in faith. He will forgive you. He will make peace with you. Do you understand 
that apart from Jesus Christ today, you are at enmity with God. You are fighting a war with God. And if you fight a war with God, you will lose eternally. good news is he offers you peace. He offers reconciliation to all who repent, who turn from selfishness and self-worship and the worship of false gods. We who know the Lord we do not need to fear the turning of the providential wheels that are crushing all who would rebel against God under them. If we are marked with the mark of the cross by the Lord Jesus himself, we will escape. Not only will we escape, we get to participate in his reign and the joy of, of knowing that he is in control. I would urge you to ask yourself this morning, do you know that peace? Do you know that joy? Do you have that confidence that comes only through what Christ, our great high priest, has done in sacrificing himself in your place that you might have eternal life? Call upon him now in faith. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these hard chapters which speak of hard things. Your righteous wrath and judgment against rebellious sinners. And we deserve it ourselves except for your mercy, except for you marking us with the sign of the cross through what Jesus did on it in our behalf our great high priest. Father, may we be drawn closer to him today as, as, as having sat under your word and if you are pleased to bring someone to faith in yourself uh, through your word, may, may that occur even now. They would know how much they are loved and forgiven by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. To the gospel by offering ourselves and our gifts.